Hello and welcome back to the Balanced Garden podcast. I'm your host, Tiger Lily Raphael, and this episode, Still Light, is the last of the year. I hope it serves you well in looking back on 2020 and forwards to 2021. In part one, I'll be sharing my usual seasonal highlights with you, and in part two, I'm very lucky to have interviewed Ed Gillespie, a writer, serial entrepreneur and futurist. He's a big thinker and we had a huge conversation about this enormous year. In part three, we have a solstice message from Uncle Mark, who featured in our first ever episode of the podcast. And then, as usual, I'll round it up by looking into my huge mirror in part four and reflecting it all back to you as I do. I'm also very happy to announce that from January, Balanced Garden will have an amazing new schedule of yoga and meditation classes. For the first week of the new year in January, you can try any of these classes for free. Keep an eye on our social media channels and our mail out for the info on how to sign up. And lastly, thank you for your incredible support for the podcast so far. Your encouragement and listening ears are vastly appreciated. There are now 4,000 of you who have subscribed to the podcast after only three episodes. So thank you. We are deeply grateful and very much encouraged. So we've made it to the other side of the winter solstice. After December the 21st, 22nd, when the Northern Hemisphere tilts its furthest away from the sun, the journey back towards it begins. On winter solstice, the sun appears to stay still above the Tropic of Capricorn. So the original word, solstitium, is composed of sol, sun and sisteri, still. Daylight on winter solstice lasts for only 7 hours and 50 minutes, almost 9 hours less than the summer solstice. This leaves us in just under 16 hours of darkness, which is almost as much light as we receive in midsummer. Once we're the other side of the solstice though, we can start looking forward to those longer days once again. On December the 22nd, dusk falls a full minute later, and by Christmas Eve, which is when I'm recording this, we get an extra two minutes of light. By New Year's Eve, we'll see an extra seven minutes of light, and by the 12th night of Christmas, on the 5th of January, a whole 12 minutes more light. So that's something to look forward to. It's a time of year when light and warmth is in short supply from the natural world. We need those extra resources, which would of course have been wood, and the source of wood, trees. And so we find ourselves celebrating the symbol of the source of light and life with our Christmas trees and menorahs. These altars evolved as a place for meditating on the eventual return of lighter days where we placed gifts and set intentions, gather with our loved ones and prepare for a new year. The solstice feast that many of us now call a Christmas dinner would have been the last of the year's harvest and home brews before the growing season began when people would often have to go hungry whilst they waited for the spring yield. 
In many countries in the developing world, the hungry season is still very much part of the annual harvest cycle and a precarious time for those without the grain or money saved for the monsoon and growing gap. It makes sense that when the fields lie empty and many trees stand bare, we gather around the evergreens, holly, ivy, mistletoe and pine. Bringing green into our homes to compensate for the lack of it outside, we remind ourselves that there is new growth just around the corner. As we know, Santa himself was, of course, once dressed in green before Coca-Cola decided that a red outfit would work better for their Christmas advertising campaign. But you might not have known that Father Christmas and Santa may have at one point been two or more people. I mean, he does have a lot of different names, so it's not really surprising. But the earliest sightings were of St. Nicholas, the third century bishop of Myra in Turkey, who wore red robes and gave gifts to the poor. Apparently he was shy and wanted to give anonymously, so he dropped coins down their chimneys where they landed in stockings that were hung up to dry above the fire. This character arrived in Britain with the Normans and was absorbed into the legend of Father Christmas, who was already part of pagan winter festivals. In the 5th and 6th centuries, he morphed into King Winter, King Frost or Father Time, who someone would dress up as and be welcomed into people's homes, invited to sit near the fire and have something to eat and drink, in the hope that he'd give them something good in return, like a mild winter. Then the Vikings arrived with their traditions, like the one at the end of December when the Norse god Odin transformed into Yule, with a white beard and long blue hooded cloak, riding through the world on his eight-legged horse, giving gifts to the good and delivering punishment to the bad. So let's hope you've all been good this year. I think we probably all deserve a gift or two after the challenges of 2020. To reflect on the challenges of the last year, I called up Ed Gillespie, who I first met at Shambhala Festival when I started stage managing Sankofa's stage, which hosted his programme of talks and workshops at the Imaginarium. Ed is a writer and serial entrepreneur, as well as the author of Only Planet, a book about his circumnavigation of the globe without getting on a plane, and also a new book of poetry, Songs of Love in Lockdown. He co-presents two brilliant podcasts which I highly recommend listening to, The Great Humbling with Dougal Hind and John Richardson and the Future Noughts, How to Survive the Apocalypse. He's also a facilitator of responsible leadership development and works with 25 of the UK's biggest institutions. The way I've described 2020 uh, it's almost like the, the drawing back of the veil, the true meaning of the word apocalypse, where we actually, we pull back the covers uh, and then underneath we realise that there's some pretty messy pipe work about the way the world is working, whether it's in terms of environmental and ecological crises like climate change and biodiversity loss and the desecration of nature, through to you know, social and economic inequalities and all the sort of prejudices that are wrapped up in those. And so 2020 has been 
we used to say that it's about 2020 vision, which is always about sharp-eyed clarity, you know, the ability to have perfect vision. Uh, and in many respects, that's what's happened. You know, the pandemic, which incidentally, you know, I was doing a workshop at the Bank of England in January, where we were talking about uh, what you might describe as very low probability, but very high impact risks. Uh, and we were there talking about non-linear climate risks on the back of the Australian fires. Uh, but in many aspects, you know, we also discussed pandemics uh, and economic crises. And, in, and we have all three now. We have all three coming together, uh, which obviously sort of stops us in our tracks. And I think, for me, what 2020 has done is exposed that uncomfortable truth and that painful reality um, but also accelerated lots of underlying trends, such as video conferencing, such as homeworking, such as, uh, you know, the growth of grassroots community actions and activism, uh, like we've seen through the mutual aid networks. And it's, and it's reminded us all, all of what is actually really important and special, which is connection to each other uh, and connection to nature. Uh, and when that's all sort of bound up in the issues around you know, an economic system which has then lost 20% of gross domestic product, which is a terrible way of measuring activity, but you know, it's an indication of, of how dire this year has been. It also then forces us to, to confront that uncomfortable reality and say, okay, now what do we do? So I, I would say 2020 is a much needed jolt, a huge intervention, which is calling us and, and imploring us to wake up uh, and to focus on, on what we really should be getting on with. I absolutely agree. You know, we have, we have heard a lot of that kind of positive spin on, on things, mm. I think, but it is also really easy to get lost in the day-to-day grind and the lockdown and and the economic fears and and it's quite mm. hard it can be hard to kind of maintain that perspective on yeah systemic change and revolution and a lot of a lot of change that was that was needed like you say the best analysis i've heard uh, about our sort of current dilemma actually comes from South American lady called Vanessa Andriotti, who said, you know, we're essentially caught between these sort of binary positions, these polarities, where on the one hand, you have the sort of projected hope, um, which is all about the sort of false optimism, you know, and we see this in our prime minister on a daily basis, you know, who has, for want of his own instinctive frailties, uh, continually tried to promise an impossible optimism for the whole course of the pandemic. Uh, and all it's led us into is, you know, ever increasing lockdowns uh, and more chaos. And that projected hope is really problematic. You know, it's, it's, it is the, the area in which false optimism and revolutionary messianic type of promises take us, which are not grounded in reality. You know, and in many senses, that what's happened is Boris Johnson's false optimism has bumped up against brutal reality and I say you can't negotiate with a virus and you can't negotiate with climate change um, they're non-negotiables and then on the other side of the polarity you have projected hopelessness which is 
you know, the sort of fatalism and resignation of look, somehow everything is doomed and we all deserve this. And it becomes quite misanthropic because it becomes about hating people and people being responsible and nasty and ugly and selfish. And, and, and what Vanessa says is those are both projections. You know, they're not actually the reality. It's like the projected hope and the projected hopelessness. And, and she describes it as a tightrope we have to walk between those two positions which is where we use humor uh, and we use a genuinely grounded humility and, you know, being humble, which is about going back to ground and, you know, literally the word hummus back into the soil um, and a sort of hyper self-reflectivity where we have to sit with the discomfort and ask ourselves the awkward questions. And that's where the fertile ground is. And that's where uh, I've been exploring with my mate Dougal Hine in our other podcast, The Great Humbling. It's like, well, what, what would it feel like if we approached our challenges from that position of humility, rather than the hubristic, hubristic arrogance of, of false optimism, and rather than the sort of fatalistic resignation uh, of projected hopelessness? Uh, and, and somewhere in the middle there is the stuff that lifts my heart <laughs> and, and and actually, I feel it quite instinctively in my gut that that's, that's where we have to be. Because, you know, it, it's not all over, but it's going to get bumpy and it's going to get awkward. And unless we begin to shift consciousness as well as behavior, then we're always going to be circling and cycling at completely the wrong level of the potential for transformative change. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it, that tightrope um, and, and finding that middle ground and, and the ground. Um, yeah, full yeah. Stop. And, it's, and it's not, it's a tightrope, it's a balancing act because, you know, and I think any of us who've worked in change feel that oscillation between, you know, optimism and pessimism. And we find ourselves, you know, flip flopping between the two. Um, and again, you know, there's all sorts of very deep wisdom and, and very long-standing teachings which show us that it's, it, it's the balancing act in the middle that counts. Yeah, and also the, the ability to accept complex realities, to accept duality. And mm. I think what you've described as this, like, uh, it, to these two extremes of... A totally unrealistic optimism that doesn't serve us and fatalistic pessimism that doesn't get us anywhere at all um mm. and that those that, that our kind of cultural narrative for a long time the story that we've told ourselves is one of um this or that uh, simplicity like mm. everything's either great or it's terrible and that's what we show either, you know, post on social media about our fantastic news or our terrible tragedy. We don't really show the, the, the efforts in between the sort of blisters on the hands of mm. the sculptor is always the example I use. But. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and, and, and the trouble is the most pernicious narrative in a way is this narrative of inevitable and inexorable progress. You know, we think that every generation will automatically enjoy a better quality of life than the one that came before it. And that's quite a hardwired notion of progress, which has been with us certainly in the developed Western world for the last couple of hundred years. 
Um, and that's actually called sharply into question by mm. obviously the interconnected and interdependent challenges we face, whether it's climate, biodiversity, you know, inequality. Um, and we have to sort of reinvent that notion and get us away from progress and actually into a cultural mindset, which is about well-being. Um, and it sounds corny and cliche to say that, but it's fundamentally true because the system as it currently operates is, is really not making us happy. And it's not, it's not driving the changes in the wider world either. So, you know, we've, we have this enormous hamster wheel of, of the rat race with most people disengaged and disenfranchised from their work. You know, we don't have an economy of meaning, um, let alone a functioning conventional economy at the moment. Um, and so we're, we're trying to find purpose at all levels, you know, whether it's a sort of civilizational purpose is like, what are we actually trying to achieve here? Uh, and all, equally for each of us individually, uh, and locally to find purpose in our own lives, in our own work. And I think that's where, you know, you know it, gets, it gets exciting again. The incalculable amount of stuff we care of elderly and sick relatives, you know, all of these things are not factored into our economy as it currently stands. Uh, and yet they're priceless. They're the things that actually make life worth living and incredibly valuable. When we have activities like the commute, which, you know, I don't think, and I'm not making a prediction here, but I don't think it's going to come back in anything like the shape or form or intensity which we had before. And yet that was a cumulative normality, which meant we had tens of millions of people charging around the country every day, countless lost hours, stress, pollution, congestion, you know, ill health, um, you know, even at the best of times. You know, getting on the tube in London was like dicing with, you know, the latest round of cold or flu. Um, and that's before the pandemic. And I just, I just don't think that will come back in, in quite the same way because we've all had the jolt and gone, oh, hang on. You know, I could save myself hours a week. I could spend more time with my family. Uh, you know, I could balance my quality of life. And again, without this, this blunt disruption, we probably would have carried on like that for another 10 or 20 years. And I, I think... And it's not to say that you will never go back to the office again, because clearly we will, but perhaps only for a day or two a week, uh, and perhaps only to do the creative collaborative work that really matters. And, you know, it's these type of insights, which I think are so critical in terms of informing a new narrative beyond that simple linear progress to say, no, we need to, we need to ask, as the average three and a half year old, like my daughter says all the time, why, daddy, why? Why do we do that? You know, and, and actually, it's, it's a really powerful question. Uh, the, the pandemic has asked us all these awkward questions because it said, basically, you know, now go back to your room and think really carefully about what you've done, which, again, is what every parent has said to their child at some point. And we're being asked to do that as a species, you know. And I often quote Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, who said, you know, most of humanity's problems come from our inability to sit quietly alone in a room with ourselves. And, and that's true. And, yeah, and uh, we've, had, we've had to do a lot of that <laughs> this year. Yeah, we've had to do a lot of that. And, and, so for some and again, this also exposes the inequalities because, you know, there are some people who can go and work in their home office, you know, sit in their garden and actually quite enjoy the sort of furlough experience. And then you've got people who live 
with the whole family in a flat without a garden in an inner city area for whom it can feel like a sort of a claustrophobic intensity that is a completely different experience. And again, what the pandemic has done is exposed those inequalities in a very, very raw and uncomfortable way. Yeah, absolutely it has. And um, uh, one, of, one of the big ways in which we've seen that, I guess, expressed and demonstrated was through the, the reaction to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, which mm. obviously sent huge waves across the world in the Black Lives Matter movement this year. And I wanted to ask you about that, actually, um, as a white man, and a white woman talking, um, how that affected uh, the, the questions you asked, were asking yourself in your room alone. How anyone can not be moved by someone pleading for their life with someone else with their knee on their throat and for that person placing the knee to feel the backing of authority and power behind them as if that was a justification. I mean, that in itself is such an incredibly visceral and horrific scenario because that is, you know, it's the epitome of the abuse and the cruelty of power because the, the police officer felt a license to be able to um, inflict that pain and suffering and to ignore the pleas of a man trying to get a breath to survive. And it's not, obviously, there's been, you know, horrifically hundreds of those type of incidents of people being shot. And it's, I think it's just a boiling rage. That actually, when you tune into the emotion of that, it's not surprising that it bubbles over. Because I think at the most basic level, um, it, it's, it's an appeal to our innermost humanity that no one should be treated like that. And yet, you know, we, again, we have that spectrum from those terrible instances of, of police injustice and violence and murder all the way through to the sort of micro aggressions uh, and the humiliations and the, and the prejudices that people uh, of color can face. And I think, you know, again, this is a wake up call. It, it's not like we haven't made some progress since, you know, the civil rights movements in the States. And, you know, and I've lived in Brixton in South London for 22 years. Uh, and the eras of, you know, the early 80s and the infamous Brixton riots, you know, there has been progress, but it's, it's not enough, you know, and it's almost like, again, you have to sit with the discomfort of that reality and avoid the comforting narratives that we might tell ourselves that it's all somehow okay now, because it's not. And then you see things like the Windrush scandal with the, you know, appalling treatment of people who came to work and rebuild the country after the war. Um, you know, these, these things are, again, you get emotional thinking about it, but you know, they're such chronic injustices. And yet you still see people, you know, up in arms. Uh, uh, and just before Christmas, you know, we have people complaining that the diversity of supermarket adverts is somehow a betrayal of of a majority white country, which is insane, you know, and this is, this is the um, manifestation, if you like, of an inability of a country to have a mature and open and awkward, difficult, uncomfortable conversation about colonial history, 
um, about our own role and to try and gloss over that uh, or to, not to acknowledge um, the complexities as you alluded to. So it's right, you know, it's principled, it's proper. This is exactly the type of vocalization of frustration that we need to have. And at the same time, we all have to be open and honest um, enough. And, and again, I use the word mature because we have to talk about it and for that to be a catharsis. Um, and I just don't think we're at that stage yet uh, in the UK or in, or, in, or in the US or in other places where you can have those difficult conversations. I think we've been forced to in a lot of ways this year to that those difficult conversations that we are I think conditioned to avoid and and not really mm. prepared like not really educated to know how to have that engagement with difficult awkward painful subjects you know, we're not well equipped in this culture. We don't come into contact with death very, very often. Mm. You know, a lot of those subjects that are hard have been, I guess, made into taboos. And we have certain days of the year where where they come out as fancy dress and uh, turn into mm. a commercial exercise rather than the actual kind of ritualistic, meaningful aspect of those moments in the year that are there for a reason, what with it being solstice yeah. and it being a very dark time and a time for mm. lighting our sort of candles and reflecting, I think it's really appropriate that we've ended up talking about dark things and how mm. how easy or difficult it is for us to face them and reflect on them and sit quietly we don't do grief we no. don't do grief we avoid grief we are fearful of it and we don't seek to engage with it sometimes it's only through our own grisly and gritty experience of grief that we have those epiphanies and that ability to engage with an emergence of our, as you say, of our own attitudes and, and capabilities of having those difficult conversations. And then I lost my father in 2016. I lost my brother in 2019. And those two experiences were absolutely instrumental for me in terms of a humbling, uh, of bringing me back down to ground as to what really matters. And if you like, there's a sort of cultural and societal grief that we refuse to acknowledge in this, both in the sense of the injustices that go on on a daily basis um, and, you know, the, the damage and the irrevocable loss uh, of, of nature in the wild. And I think if you don't engage with that, then you're blocking the, the tide of love because grief is always about uh, a dance with love because we grieve because we love something, you know. So you grieve the loss of a loved one, you, you grieve the loss of nature because you care about it um, and that doesn't mean that you know you wallow in that grief grief is is genuinely a transformative process which should get you to somewhere else you don't get over grief you get through it um, and it's a very it's a very difficult journey it takes time um, but equally if you just 
put up the, the barriers and defenses and refuse to allow that emotion to flow, then it becomes really problematic. Um, you know, and I, I hesitate to pick up on our prime minister, but do you, does anyone perhaps have a sense that that man is able to connect to a sense of grief? You know, grief should be an amazing thing. And I go back to my work as a marine ecologist and, and what they call shifting baseline syndrome, whereby, you know, we are not grieving the loss of the natural world because we fail to see the big picture of how much has been lost. Because we think that the nature that we experience in our lives is the normal level of richness and diversity and fecundity, um, rather than what it actually is, which is a fragment uh, of what should be there. And Tyson Yunkaporter, this amazing Australian Aboriginal uh, uh, activist, wrote a brilliant book this year called Sand Talk uh, about how indigenous thinking can save the world. I mean, he said, you know, we're at the start of a thousand year project because that's how long it will take for the old growth forests to return. A personal experience for me, I visited a forest in Suffolk this year, which is just down the road from where I grew up, a place called Staverton Thicks. Um, and it's a whole forest of eight or 900 year old pollarded oak trees. And it's like no other forest I've ever seen in, in Britain. And it's because it's almost unique in Britain. And it's only then when you get that firsthand experience, you go, oh my God, you know, what have we done to the rest of the landscape? Because this is what it was, you know, mm. uh, a millennia or so ago. And it's, again, it's a very striking sensation and we should be there connecting with that sense of grief because it's then the resultant emergence of love which will allow us allow us to change and begin that process of regeneration rejuvenation replanting regrowth that is so urgently required that's a process right there that we i guess have not been allowing ourselves to move through and that those cycles actually we do go through um i mean women do on a more physical level each month but we all do within our lives and within you know through loss and i'm so sorry to hear about your father and your brother that's, that's tragic and we there is tragedy in life and that's part of 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 why we can come through with the appreciation mm. of life as you say and um and that and this annual cycle of um of growth and decay and death and this point of the year where we return to the the, the shortest days and then starting to grow longer and looking at the next phase yeah. of of growth that's a cycle and a process and i think what you said about the prime minister not displaying that not not showing leadership in that respect well i think that's really symptomatic of the broader culture that has been dominating mm. and mm. that he is representative of that broader culture and you know i really hoped when he came out of hospital and actually made that speech all about love <laughs> and the beating mm. heart of the, the NHS is the beating heart and spoke about those nurses I thought wow he clearly has had some wake-up calls from that near <clears throat> near-death experience but obviously I 
I was skeptical that that change would stay it stick around for long and mm. and that that dominant narrative wouldn't kind of come back in but we did see something there because the risk is otherwise that we learn nothing um you know that and this is why we all celebrate and welcome you know the incredibly rapid development and hopefully rollout of a vaccine i think it's it's worrying in a sense that that's then seen as the panacea that everything that was exposed in terms of things that were going wrong is just oh we've got a vaccine now we can all get back to normal um and you know there's a, a new human virus emerges from nature about every four months and it happens with greater frequency now that we have put even more pressure on the wild and you know that's not going to go away there'll there will be another one of these um you can't just put all your eggs in the basket of a vaccine and say hey everything's going to be fine um and again that's why i keep bringing us back to this point around humility you know there are there are lessons being served up here that we must choose to digest um, and we ignore them and try and blunder our way past them at our peril. So a big year dishing up yeah. a, a, lot, <laughs> a lot of lessons. Um, I know that you, you work with, with large institutions around change and future forecasts, kind of visioning. I, I guess I, you know, want to look forward now at the year that, that we're about to begin and ask you, um, where do you think this is taking us? Mm. What's, hap- what's going to happen next, I mean, Ed? I mean, it's a, it's a huge question. I mean, what's going to happen, I guess, I don't do predictions, but I think, I mean, certainly what we've seen with those large organisations is a, perhaps a kind of a different recognition of the severity and urgency of challenges because of the sort of intervention and shakedown that's taken place. You know, if you take some huge companies like the big oil and gas giants, I mean, they were, they were wobbled by the negative oil prices this year um, and the you know, dramatic cut in demand. And these are, if you like, future echoes of the world that's coming. And we know there's a big battle playing out in, in macro issues like energy because now renewables are basically cheaper and quicker to deploy. And so we have a big shift to electrification and now the debate is not if that's going to happen but how fast I mean, there are good people in all of these big institutions trying to do good things equally there are i'm not going to call them bad people though there are those who have got the brakes on the process of change um and that's a huge dramatic dynamic which is going to pan out um in, in ways which will be rough uh i think we have to be very frank about that and we might have to find ways of hospicing them or facilitating them to sort of you know how do you let them going back to your cycles of birth and, and death how do we allow companies to die and to die gracefully not in a way which has massive problematic implications for everyone else i do think that might become um a, a bigger issue uh and at the same time you know we've also got this is back to the sort of projected hope piece you know we've got this sort of race to net zero and a lot of those are still living on false promises i think because unless they're radically and fundamentally changing what they do 
then they're going to be relying on an enormous amount of carbon offsetting or carbon balancing, um, which is simply just not going to be available as everyone wants to buy up quality offsets. Uh, and it is still, still sort of get out of climate change jail free, or you don't have to make the big painful and uncomfortable shifts. You just, you basically buy your salvation um, through offsetting. And so I do think there's still a lot of that systemic denial in big institutions. The, the flip side is, I think, hopefully there'll be a greater capacity for courage. Um, and I think we're starting to see that from companies taking a much more bold approach to diversity and inclusion because they have to because they're not representative and that's you know gender based racially based um ability based you name it um and i i, I think the hardest part for them is to see these as linked you know so it's not just about your carbon strategy it's not about your diversity and inclusion strategies you know these are all parts of what a, a truly regenerative business will have to look like and, and I've touched on a couple of those threads you know about uh, a bigger than self-purpose a planetary sense of purpose an economy of meaning of personal purpose um, but also I do think we have to look in, in a very novel way at the kind of redistribution of reward um, and that's a, an ongoing and controversial question which we've raged with for decades you know you've seen people like jeff bezos you know personal fortunes that actually completely flourish during the pandemic you know his personal worth is 200 billion dollars now um and at the same time the richest percentage of uk households increased their savings by something like 100 billion pounds over the course of this year because their overheads came down and again at the other end you've got this this horrible shakedown of people using food banks and barely being able to make ends meet you know we have to understand that we are already collectively rich beyond our wildest dreams it's not a pie you know it's not if you give someone else the bigger share of the pie you lose we all collectively do better i mean the mantra i've been sharing is it comes from the civil rights movement is that none of us are safe until all of us are safe you know we can't self-isolate from these things you can't self-isolate from climate change you might try and self-isolate yourself physically in your gated community from inequality uh, but that means that the streets that you wish to walk won't be safe for you so how do we raise that bar to have uh, an economy which functions in an inclusive fashion without trashing the planet in the first place and that cannot be an impossible ask if we can you know have the ambition and the aspiration to reconcile it yeah it's um something that popped into my head earlier when you were talking about growth and progress mm. was the idea that of redefining progress redefining to what success looks like and actually it's interesting when you picked up on the generational prosperity so my generation millennials we're the first uh, generation in recorded history to have been less well off than the previous generation yeah. and i yeah. actually think that is a necessary trend uh, and one that makes us well equipped to come into, I guess, 
adulthood I mean who knows when that starts it seems to be very <laughs> very late to these days uh, but the, people it's only on their deathbed <laughs> yeah I mean maybe never but you know I turned 30 this year and um yeah right in the middle of a pandemic and and I feel like that that trajectory that that we've been on in terms of managed decline is perhaps what we're here to help facilitate i completely agree i completely agree i mean and it's difficult because it's about it's about a changing of aspiration and expectation Mm. um, and a redefinition of what being wealthy means yeah you know i say this as a you know increasingly slightly grumpy old man you know i'm 48 so i'm nearly 20 years older than you um and it is interesting because we know actually and there's a lot of criticism of the millennial generation because you know i think boomers can look at them and 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 see them as feckless but it's actually i think it's more about an appreciation of of what wealth means and if that's meaningful friendships you know access to nature work with purpose uh you know you'll you'll work for less and i know this you know as someone who's been involved in lots of startup ethical businesses you work bloody hard but you may make those exchanges you know you can go and work for you know a big four consultancy firm in london you know and take your fancy startup salary as soon as you've graduated from university but i think very quickly you start to ask the question you go well, what is, what does this all mean mm. whereas if you're working in your community providing some kind of service which people value and appreciate uh, that very quickly um, matters a lot more and you, you can't replace the false god if you like of you know and we're obsessed in the uk with property ownership and property prices and all of those kind of things and i think we just have to become much more clever and creative whilst whilst the system hopefully begins to reorientate itself about how we ride those waves of change and that may be through you know cohabitation and co- more cooperatives profit on one side can be outcompeted by pleasure and if we can have more joy and satisfaction and meaning in life through a pursuit of perhaps a collaborative type of approach you know then that might be the way that we draw the heat away from this this engine of profit and the furnace that drives it which at the moment is sort of burning out of control i think what really comes out of that for me is um values and like you said the direction of the flame that we are thinking more creatively about what we're fighting for what we seek to protect based on what we love and and so when you said uh the outcomes and the, the the measures of outcomes i guess what it really boils down to this year what i've been thinking mostly about is what we measure what are we concerned with achieving and producing and those values shifting like you say away from from those kind of dominating financial material extrinsic values towards the more social environmental relationship nature Mm based values that are what connect us all and concern us all and like you say we're not safe until we're all safe and i think this is why 
it's a great moment in terms of the solstice reflection, as you say, the turning of the cycle, the turning of the season, the, the cycle of birth and death, that you come to these type of reflections. Mm. Because, you know, there is everything to play for. Coming back to what I was saying right at the start, it's not about projected hope and false optimism, nor is it about projected hopelessness and, and resigned fatalism. It is the tightrope. And that the tightrope is the joyous bit, you know. <laughs> it's like, that's the bit where you're, you know, you're teetering above the incredible view of the, the precipice that you're trying to cross. That's the magic. And that's what we mustn't lose sight of. You know, we're in such an incredibly adaptive species and adaptable species that we can go through these moments of potential transformative change and then actually forget the key insights very quickly that we should have been heeding and listening to and embodying um, because we just move on. Uh, you know, and, and this, is, this is going back to what I was saying about the vaccine is like we don't want this to then gloss over uh, and paint over the, the incredibly beautiful images and difficult, challenging images that came out of the pandemic. I don't know, 2021 is to carry on carrying that fire, to not forget um, and, and try and put 2020 blindly behind us as some kind of aberration or piece of monumental bad luck, but actually as a schooling that we urgently needed uh, and that we could do incredible things with. Thank you so much to Ed Gillespie for taking the time to share his illuminating perspective on this enormous year. For links to Ed's podcasts and his book of poetry, Songs of Love and Lockdown, head as always to the blogcast at balancegarden.co.uk. In our very first episode of the podcast, which arrived with the autumn solstice back in September, Balance Gardens founder and my co-producer Jasmine Pudan had a chat with one of her uncles, Tom, who lives and works on a small farm in Dorset called Haddon Copse. Living and working there with him is his husband, Mark, a wonderful writer who sends a beautiful message to his family and friends on each equinox and solstice, which we also publish on the Balance Garden blog. I will now read this year's solstice message which Mark shared with us. To my mind, it is little wonder that in the Northern Hemisphere this time of year has been marked with celebrations throughout human history. Before we transformed the way we live our lives by flooding our world with artificial light and warming it with profuse heat, the depths of the winter cold and darkness would have meant a contraction in all human activity and an increase in the difficulty and danger of life. Firelight was the only means to extend our diurnal existence, so we can only imagine the joy and relief that arriving at this turning point would have brought our ancestors, heralding, as it does, the return of the light and the warmth and the life. Ancient traditions across the Northern Hemisphere are strikingly similar in their celebrations of this auspicious night, all of them aligning their celebrations with the movements of the cosmos. In the Roman Empire, the birthday of the unconquered sun, Sol Invictus, was marked by present-giving. In China and East Asia, the festival of Dongzi, meaning the extreme of winter, is a traditional time for family gatherings and customary food. 
The Persian festival of Shab'i Yelda also brings family gatherings as well as the lighting of candles, poetry readings and a feast to mark the longest and darkest night of the year. For the Norse peoples, this time of year was called Yule and was a time for feasting, decorating trees and singing traditional songs. As the Abrahamic religions of the Western world began to emerge, the link with the solar year began to be lost and celebrations focused not on the victorious sun but on the monotheistic male deity. Even so, the celebrations of light remain significant in the Jewish December festival of Hanukkah and for Christians in marking the birth of Christ, the light of the world. So, as the sun sets on the 21st of December and we reach this significant moment in the Earth's annual cycle, what will we all be celebrating? Our modern comforts mean that the return of the light no longer holds the significance it once did. Our scientific minds may no longer fill with gratitude when the sun begins its journey back to its zenith once again. We may have no impression of relief that the longest and darkest night is behind us once more. And even as most of us celebrate Christmas, the intended religious significance for many in the UK has been lost. So, our festivities risk being devoid of meaning, our traditions no longer relevant, our merriment empty of remembrance. As we race through the advent calendar of our to-do lists, we risk becoming disengaged and disenchanted. For in the end, the universe can only be explained in terms of celebration. It is all an exuberant expression of existence itself, wrote Thomas Berry. I'd like to invite us all to step back into a world of enchantment and enter into a moment of grace to engage once more with the unfolding universe and celebrate it. And the way to do this, I think, is in the smallest, slightest ways, in moments of still contemplation and in minutes of quiet intimacy with the world around us. Step outside, look up. On a clear midnight, you might spend a while watching the magnificent constellation of Orion stride east to west across the night sky, the hilt of his sword pointing to his direction of travel. Remind yourself that by midsummer he will no longer be visible, for Orion is a seasonal visitor. As a late December dawn breaks, you might hear a robin valiantly defending its winter territory in the hope of spring to come. Robin is one of the only birds to be singing at this time of year, so relish the solo. By May, it will be just one voice in the choir. As you walk, you might notice that here and there plants are filling with life, even though the bleak midwinter chill is on them. In a south-facing hedgerow, protected from the prevailing wind by its counterpart on the other side of the lane, you might spot the flowers of summer, bramble, yarrow, honeysuckle and campion all venturing forth. If you keep your eyes peeled, winter visiting birds may thrill you with their own annual journey, as a flare of red wings did for us in the dazzle of a four o'clock sunset. As we do this, we might reflect that whatever we witness is part of the seasonal transformation of our planet, and that simply by noticing it, we are bringing ourselves back into coordination with the wonder, 
magnificence and meaning of our surroundings. As we grow familiar with the cyclical rhythms of our immediate environment, we are stepping back into the grand patterns of the universe itself. And if we continue to notice, we will discover day by day signs that the light and warmth are returning. Take note of the first snowdrop, the first time you see a bumblebee. If we keep our eyes open, we will detect that the sun is rising slightly further east each morning as it begins its six month journey back to its northernmost point. If we watch closely, we'll notice the days slowly lengthen as the seasons adjust. Surely that is something to celebrate, something worth marking with our loved ones, something worth feasting and singing and exchanging gifts for, something worth remembering, as our ancestors have done in a sometimes lost, sometimes recovered, sometimes unbroken line since ancient times. As the outside world sits in seeming stillness, it is for many of us a difficult and uncomfortable place to sit still with things that are hard to accept or understand, the sides of ourselves which maybe aren't feeling so confident in this endlessly uncertain existence. It is not easy. It has not been an easy year. But it is not the easy things that have taught me the most important lessons, led to my biggest achievements or given me my best memories. Easy isn't necessarily best. Change can be hard to embrace. It can be scary. We might not feel ready, but it doesn't wait for us. It makes us ready. For if we never had to face anything we feared, there'd be no reason to grow stronger, brighter or wiser. We wouldn't grow at all. Nothing would. You can't hold back the tide and you wouldn't want to. As the seasons constantly change, the world changes, we change. This is a moment to stop. Take stock. Find the light in the darkness. Let it guide you. We are all in the dark, not alone, just with a little space between us. Space to remember what matters, space to grow, space to see farther beyond. Fear of the dark is to be afraid of the unknown, the unseen, the imagined creatures of the night, the monsters of our imagination. There are plenty of those to be found at the moment, and there always are. We never know what is out there or what's to come. It's up to us what we imagine it might be. Whether to expect everything to be perfect and find that it never is, that we've been set up for disappointment, or whether to see the worst and miss the best bits along the way. Or we can look into the dark and see the flame burning. Remember the sun is still out there and that life is all things. Remember that it's okay to feel what we are feeling. Happy, scared, angry, sad, humble, hopeful and everything else in between. To remember that we are humans, we are animals and we are in this together. And that without darkness, there is no light. Without death, there is no life.
and without loss. There is no love. Thank you for listening to the Balanced Garden Podcast, which is independently produced by me, Tiger Lily Raphael, and me, Jasmine Pradhan. The soundtrack comes from the Manasseh Meets Praise LP, produced by my father, Nick Manasseh, and licensed by Roots Garden Records. For links to the music, special guests, and to see photos and other features from the podcast, head to the blogcast at balancegarden.co.uk. We'll be back in 2021. Until then, live well and enjoy. Growing together, cultivating the spaces between us. Balanced Garden is a well-living platform that bridges the world inside and outside. We offer ideas for reflections, recipes and practices through a podcast, blog, yoga and workshops that support healthy relationships with ourselves, each other, nature and all the spaces in between.